I'm joined today by James George, who is a self-confessed circular economy troubadour. And we're going to find out what that really means. And I'm saying self-confessed because I'm assuming he thought that one up, but it might be that actually the world considers him to be a circular economy troubadour. We'll find that out. But I do know that he's a strategic advisor in all things circular economy and also describes himself as a bit of a curious human. So I think we might have to go there too. And so this is going to be a very, very interesting conversation. And the topic that... Um, James and I have been sort of mulling around for a little while is this whole idea of trying to unpack the concept of circular economy, because I know a lot of people listening to this, and I know a lot of people in you know, commerce in general are finding it quite tricky to kind of get their head around actually what this thing is. Everybody's heard of circular economy. Everybody knows it's a good thing to do. It's all part of the sustainability mix. But how do you do it? What do you do? Who's out there doing good stuff? So who better to consult on this and to have a really deep dive conversation with than James? So welcome to the uh, the podcast, James. Thank you, Neil. Thanks for having me. And I, I guess with that introduction, I uh, I, I feel like I'm, I'm set up to fail now. I can only disappoint from here on out. But no, thank you. It's um, great, great to be here. That's great. Well, I listened to and I, I there's, there's no way this is going to disappoint because I listened to you um, on a couple of occasions, actually a couple of weeks ago at the uh, Sustainability Summit in London. Um, you gave a very, very uh, enticing, I suppose is the word for me, um, presentation around the concept of circular economy in all its various guises. And then some of the questions that came out um, that, um, in terms of your answers in some of the panel discussions as well, I thought I've got to get James on the podcast because... There's something really quite interesting in the way that James kind of covers this topic, because I think for a lot of people, it can become a little bit scientific, bit technical, bit too kind of hard to go there. But when you're talking to James, you'll realize it isn't. And this is a really great thing to do. So this is not going to fail. This is just going to be a very, very interesting conversation. So I want to kind of start really, I guess, from the beginning, really, and just kind of find out, I mean, why circular economy? I mean, you've got a, um, it'd be very interesting to hear a little bit about kind of your uh, sort of previous career um, before kind of becoming a strategic advisor in this sort of field. What kind of got you to this point here today? Um, it's a really interesting question, and and um, like most stories, starts when you least expect it, right? I, my my background is I'm ex-military, spent twelve years in the Royal Navy, um, and then left after an amazing career and amazing adventure, with no idea what to do next, and and sort of you know you find yourselves in those moments in your career where you you head off in your own direction and very quickly you get rewrited in a different direction. And that, that happened to me. And I guess through, through, um, through my network, through my friends group, got chatting to folks about stuff that I could really find that would, would energize me to get out of bed in the morning um, and ended up uh, at this organization called the Ellen MacArthur Foundation based on the, based on the Isle of Wight, who, who were talking about this concept of circular economy. Um, and through the course of a few conversations, I told them my story, they told me theirs, and then there appeared to be a, a synergy. Um, and I, I, you know, back in uh, you know, a good four and a bit years ago now, started working with the, with the foundation um, around how they um, tell their story around circular economy. So they've been, they're a global think tank 
around circular economy and have been around for 11 years now, started by Dame Ellen MacArthur. Um, and, and trying to tell that narrative of a new global model, a new global economy that we should all be striving towards, moving from one that we have today, which could be described as linear. You know, we take stuff out of the ground, we make products, and at the end of their useful life, we throw them away. And, and in doing so, then we want the latest trend, the latest design, the latest modification. And the problem with that is that when we throw them away, those materials don't go back into a system. They typically go in the ground, in landfill, or they get incinerated, or they leach into our environment. So the last 10 years, the Ellen MacArthur Foundation and many others have been talking about a new way of doing things, a new economic model, whereby we can eliminate waste and pollution. We can keep materials in use and in circulation, and we can regenerate natural systems. We can regenerate natural capital. Um, so my journey started there and, and that then evolved. And then I found myself uh, about a year ago thinking, what, what now, what next? I've, I've been in the space of the, the theoretical, but now I want to get more into the practical. Uh, and then started working very closely with an organization called Pixera Global, who are based in, in Washington, in DC, who are a, a, a not-for-profit whose focus is more around um, social impact and environmental justice. So again, there became another opportunity to marry the economics with the social component when we think about system change. And that's a very long way of saying, I had a plan, but then the universe had a different idea. And, and now I end up in a space whereby I'm just talking to organizations, talking to individuals about how do they disrupt the system they say in front of them? And, and to, to the top of your, your kind of introduction, how do you tell that story in the simplest way possible? How do you meet people where they are and then take them on the journey? Circular economy is a hugely nebulous theoretical topic. It's a beautifully nebulous topic. But we don't have time necessarily to get into all of the academia. We need to understand what is the impact to us as individuals. How do we, how do we humanize that challenge? And then how do we form a position and an opinion of what we think is right in the world um, and also what we think is wrong, but then allow ourselves to be continually challenged as that thinking develops both our own and as we as we read more about it. And, and that's been my that's been my approach. And, and to your you know, mentioning about the sort of summit last week, I was very delighted to be asked by Gemma and the team at CIM to, to sort of come along and, and share the story as I see it of a circular economy is as marketers and marketing professionals everywhere start to understand the role, the force for good they play in shaping that new narrative. Hopefully I can help with some of that nebulousness, if that's even a word, but hopefully I can help kind of unpick some of those stories that allow people to engage in what is quite a technical and scientific topic but actually it's important to all of us. And ultimately this is about how do we create the right kind of systems? There are only bad choices in a bad system. So how do we generate the systems that we need now and in the future to make sure we can all interact with the global economy, but can do so in a restorative and regenerative way. So that that's kind of where I my journey's been and, and, and the role I play in that now. 
It's interesting, isn't it? When you think back as to kind of, as you say, it's like, who would have thought, you know, you'd actually end up in, in this kind of position. But I guess there is almost this perfect storm, isn't it? I know a lot of people are using this phrase now that, you know, the right people with the right skill set, the right mindset are arriving in the right places now at the right time to almost be these evangelists of, the, of this stuff. And I think the way the way you kind of describe that bringing the the kind of the practicality to the theory i think there's there's something quite fascinating about that because i think for a lot of marketers but also a lot of business professionals more generally business owners you know entrepreneurs maybe entering into a new space new marketplace there is this kind of i get it so they understand the theory it's kind of like i'm yeah. sat there thinking yep yeah, okay i agree i want to do it but somebody actually, not so long ago, actually said to me, well, actually, one of the things, I think one of the biggest challenges that we all have, and, and she used this word unpacking. She said, I actually, what I really need help in is unpacking this stuff. And I think what she was describing was the fact she could see the big picture. She could see the strategic value of kind of looking and trying to sort of develop a concept like this but needed help in unpacking. And that's it really got me thinking. And so this is what I was really, really interested to, to be talking to you about this particular su um, subject. Because I think of all the things, you know, in, in a simple nutshell, I think we all get it. We kind of all understand it is this reciprocal kind of loop that you kind of go into as far as a business. So you're not just, as you say, making, creating, and then sort of using and abusing. Um, it's basically, it's all about repurposing product, service, resource, and well, pretty much everything really. But the big question is, how do you start to unpack at a, at a real base level, kind of what you actually yeah. do already? So, I mean, where would you start? You go into company X or brand Y or whatever. I mean, where is your starting point with this? It's, it's, it's a really good question, but it's also the most important question. Um, and, 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 and there's almost an extra bit to that as well is, is why, right? Because you know, I think the, for most, you know, interesting to use the term kind of evangelist, like if you end up talking to the same people who think the same way, you, you, you know, this idea of an echo chamber, you, you start to think that everyone thinks like that, the world thinks like that. So surely we haven't got a problem. We've just got to solve it and move forward. But, but the challenge is much more nuanced than that because there are different pressures. There are different metrics. There are different cultural, societal, infrastructural challenges that, that occur between different geographies, different industries, different product types, even the same industry, the same geography, the same product type, there will be differences. So, so the bit for me is always the, the why is the, is the starting point. And, and that why can take many forms. Um, it can be because you recognize that you can do something better in the world. It could be because you've spotted a financial advantage by shifting the way you, you operate. It could be because your competitors are doing it and you don't want to get left behind. Or it could be because policy says that you have to um, and you've got to react to keep to, to make sure you don't fall short of the policy. But there's a there's a huge spectrum of reasons why. The bit for me that's important is the fact that someone has a why. It doesn't matter what it is. I'm ambivalent to the why. It's the fact that they come to the table in the first place. But actually, that why has to be the starting point of your effort as well. Because if you try and create solutions that aren't linked to your motivation, 
then you set yourself a slightly higher challenge because you're never going to believe necessarily at the same level that you need to see this through. Because this transition is going to be difficult. This transition is hard. We're basically saying after two to 300 years of growth in a certain way, we want to tear that up and grow in a different way. We want to move from a consumptive process, an extractive process, to one that's restorative and regenerative. And, and so we need to change the way that economic system operates, because otherwise all we'll end up doing is incrementalism. And we don't have time for incrementalism. Um, so once, once you get to the why, the next bit is, as you quite rightly pointed out, is kind of where. And I think this is this is also um, again tied to tied to motivations a little bit. There's a really great sort of methodology, and I'm gonna I, I'm gonna kind of paraphrase and probably bastardize this a little bit. But there's a really great methodology from IDEO, Ideas and Design Consultancy, um, and they talk about they talk about bridges and and beacons, so bridge and beacon projects. And companies typically sit on on a spectrum with bridge at one end and beacon at the other. And a beacon project is something that um, creates lots of, lots of inspiration. It might not be perfect, but it draws people towards it. it. It allows them to see the art of the possible, the art of the practicable. Um, so these, these are projects that sometimes we need to just create that inspiration, whether that be in our internal teams, whether that be with our clients, with our suppliers, with the consumer, but they are an idea of doing something different. But as I say, they may not be perfect in their formation. And the other end of the spectrum is a bridging project. And this is something that theoretically could be really spot on in terms of its construction. But it might not be very sexy, it might not be very inspirational, but it creates the foundation for the next stage of the journey. So businesses tend to exist between bridges and beacons. And that's that's important because sometimes you need to point to a different way of doing things, be able to tell a different story. And sometimes you need to be able to put the foundations to get you there. And actually those things are both as important, but very different. So I think when organisations... Um, organizations think about and even individuals as well like what can we do there's an element of understanding the complexity of systems change and the unintended consequences but there's also something very special about getting started and i think when you're getting started it's then having the courage to be able to say this isn't going to be a perfect solution but this is going to raise enough awareness it's going to get enough buy-in from the board it's going to um, challenge our investment models to push us to the next stage of the evolution of the journey. Because that's what it is as well, right? It's a journey. And to you, to, you know, to one of the points you made, made before, um, I don't think anyone is truly an expert in this space, right? It, it is so nebulous. It is theoretical. It's evolving as we understand more. You know, this is very much one of those things. It's not about expertise. It's about folks that have just been on the journey a little bit longer. And how do we learn from those people? And how do we use the mistakes they made? And how do we use the, the, the um, inspiration that they found as the platform for us to start our journey and to build forward? So I think it's not necessarily about finding expertise, but finding folks that you can work closely with and trust and, and potentially collaborate with pre-competitively 
to change the way the landscape sees the problem, to fall in love with the problem. And that is the point that then we start to create some of the amazing innovations that we need to shift the way our global economic system operates. I'm loving that phrase, fall in love with the problem. <laughs> that is, that's that's quite sweet, actually. There's something really, I mean, if you're an innovative organisation, you'll get that totally. Falling in mm. love with the problem is almost like you thrive on, you know, that either intellectual or practical or operational challenge. For the average organisation, falling in love with problems feels like quite a step change from where they have been into this yeah. kind of brave new future. It, it, it's kind of not a natural preference, probably, for a lot of organisations. How do you kind of sort of address this kind of formula, this kind of, I don't know, pain versus gain kind of equation? Because I think a lot of people will be looking at the resources and saying, hey, we're super busy. We can't devote time to this. You know, we, we've got to survive. You know, we've got to get the, the, you know, the products out the door. We've got to go and find those extra sales. You know, we've been through two years of absolute hell. We've got to kind of just keep striving forward. We're not willing to pivot or innovate or anything like that. We're in survival mode, almost in a kind of a defensive fear-based mindset. Are those kind of companies beyond hope? No, not not at all. Um, but this does come down again a little bit to that idea of motivation, but also perspective. Um, and 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 you know, it, I I said over and over again, but it's a really important point about talking to people where they are and then helping them to see where they need to get to. Not saying you must do this now or else, because the the burning platform analogy is good in some quarters, but, but to the point you raise, if you're just trying to keep your head above water, if you're just trying to keep the lights on, if you're just trying to keep your employees employed, especially at the moment, right? There's so many externalities. We've just had two years of economic disruption. We've just seen large international global corporations brought to their knees because of supply chain disruption. We've seen small to medium enterprises disappear from our high streets, online, you, because of the the externalities and now we face a wave of um, price rises in in commodity costs in energy um, in cost of living there are huge externalities which stop us from changing or challenging the status quo which is why i think sometimes taking a you know it goes back to this idea about challenging what you what you think is is right and having your perspective and your opinion challenged in a in a constructive way this should never be an anti-growth agenda but it should be about identifying the right kind of growth the areas of the economy that are growing above all else or are growing in spite of all of those externalities um also looking at how do you take a potentially slightly longer term perspective on your survival rate as a business as an organization and again that's easy for me to say sat here on my little soapbox with no skin in the game right um but i want to put some of those elements into perspective blackrock one of the largest uh asset managers on the planet something like seven trillion dollars worth of assets under management um and most organizations I talk to and know are not BlackRock. But as an indication, this is one of the largest organized, you know, financially, um, financially sound, I guess is a, an interesting way to put it, but, but, but financially involved organizations on the planet. Seven 
trillion dollars of assets. They stood up at COP26 in November last year and said, unless we get this right, 25% of global GDP is at risk, 25%. So that doesn't just affect the Black Rocks and equivalent of this world, that affects all of us. Forbes, um, a number of years ago, um, they did a survey in the 70s and the average life expectancy of a company in the 70s was something like 67 years. They did the same survey back in 2018. So pre-pandemic, the average age of a company was 12 years. So, so you've got to, sometimes there's a perspective of saying, if you don't innovate, if you don't do something different, if you don't keep up with those trends as they come, if you don't get ahead of the policy, if you don't look for the opportunistic way to grow your business differently, then how, what is your license to operate in five, 10, 15 years time? So sometimes trying to take a longer perspective, which to your point at the top of this, this question, right, is difficult when you're just trying to keep the lights on. So, so it's about understanding what can you do right now? What are the short-term gains? But actually what are the foundations that you've got to put in place to get, get you to a much secure place in the future? And, and adapting to some of the consumer trends we're seeing, products as a service, embedding technology, looking at how you can eliminate waste and pollution and therefore resource economic um, activity within your production models are great places to start. But you've got to take a holistic approach because these are complex problems and you need a complex solution. So, so sometimes taking a bit of a, a 35,000 foot view, almost taking yourself out of that, talking to others who can, who can help you sort of I guess, um, sit in, in, in that creative space of what is the disruptive, innovative, ideative, if that's even a word, um, solutions that we can look at to generate uh, different and distributed uh, income streams. So one of the things I'd like to kind of dive a little bit deeper on is this thing, and I know you've, you've talked about this before, the, the kind of whole interaction and dynamic when you're thinking about a circular economy with supply chain. And I think, you know, it, it's a supply chain is a concept is obviously if you're making something, if you're a manufacturer or in any kind of sort of production style um, business, supply chain obviously is absolutely cru crucial and critical because you wouldn't exist without it. But I think a lot of um, business professionals realize now that they are also, even if they're in the service industry, part of a supply chain. When you're thinking of circular economy and maybe taking that 35,000 feet uh, perspective that you just described there, when you're thinking about this, how much and how early should you be kind of engaging or having those early conversations with the supply chain, either upstream or downstream? Is it is it kind of necessary really to get your own house in order before you can go there? Or would you kind of recommend in, in most cases, actually, it's worth talking to, you know, your wider network of, of businesses from, from the get go? Mm. It's a great question. And, and, and I'll I'll try not to give a, a kind of politician's answer, but it does depend. And it depends on the size of your organization. It depends on which part, uh, you know, at what stage in the supply chain you sit. But if we take one very specific example, say carbon, all right, because that, that's, 
you know, it's not everything, but it's what a lot of people are focusing on at the moment. What are our emissions? What are our scope one, scope two, and scope three emissions? So, so scope one and two are the ones that are directly associated with your organization. So the stuff that you make and the carbon associated with that, and then how you get that to the next stage of its journey, you know, whether that's to a consumer, whether it's to the next stage of manufacture, but it's the, the carbon potentially you control and influence in terms of your emissions within your organization. Scope three is then everything else outside of that, but it's still related to that product. So, so where it goes next, what are the implications? What are the implications within the supply chain? Scope one and two is much easier for folks to grapple with because they have the data, they have control over that to a certain extent. They can understand where those, um, where those emissions, but where those potential savings are. Scope three is much more difficult because it's not your data. It's not your part of the, the process. You've got to engage with your supply chain there. But we've also got to remember that my scope three, say for example, you and I are in a, in a supply chain together, Neil, and, and I make something um, and send it to you and then you make sense, send it on to the consumer. When you're looking at your scope one, two, and three, and looking at your scope three, your scope three are my scope one and two. So, so in order for you to get your solution, in order for you to be able to report on what your emissions are and then the mitigating factors of reducing and then, and then, um, and then potentially in or offsetting what, what can't be reduced, you need to work with me and I need to exchange that information with you. So we've got to do this together. We've all got to do this together. Do you start by getting your own house in order? Yeah, you probably do. But I think you do that at the same time because this is such a massive challenge, such a meta challenge. And whether your perspective is carbon or climate change or biodiversity collapse or customer retention or human rights or diversion from landfill or access to clean water, access to clean energy, whatever it is the, 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 the area you're focusing on, we've got to remember that all of these things are interconnected. All of these things are part of the global system that we sit in. Yet some things are, are more connected to our processes more than ever, but we've got to understand our interventions and our impact in the context of that system and the only way you can do that is working with others that's also and importantly when we think about the the kind of financial component that's also how we can mitigate or at least share some of the cost of the transition by working with competitors other members, um, sympathetic organisations within within our value chain, within within our within our landscape, to understand what is the bit of the problem that we own and what is the bit of the problem we can influence. Um, so, so again, it's about falling in love with the problem, but also it's it's about understanding where does your sphere of influence end and the next stage of the supply chain start, and and making sure those conversations are are aligned. Those those, those efforts are. Um, additive and that's the other thing as well going back to that point around everyone's on a journey and everyone's at different stages of the journey we don't we haven't got time to to reinvent the wheel to learn the problems all over again so how do we learn from each other from those who have possibly made the mistakes who've, who've already put effort in and use that as an opportunity to make sure any future conversations start from that that point in the journey that that someone else has already get, got to so that in a particular vertical in a business that means that 
every effort is additive rather than distractive or subtractive? How do we make sure that the, the direction we're pulling in is, is, aiming towards, um, is aiming towards a successful outcome? Um, and we can only do that by working together. Even if you're Google, even if you're as big as Google, and Google will say this out loud, they don't control all elements of their supply chain. So they have to interact with, with all of those elements in order to create the solution they want to create. And irrespective of whether your organization is one person strong or 300,000 people strong across 170 countries, you've got to work with others because the problem is complex. Mm. We said we'd try and unpack this thing, and James is unpacking this for us right before our eyes and right <laughs> by our ears. He's doing it. I knew he'd do it. I knew he would. So we're getting some detail here that's going to be very useful to kind of almost structure that thinking. I, I can picture somebody listening to this, watching this, thinking, okay, now I've got a little mind map here, or I've got a little checklist here. I'm, I'm starting to get some real value to understanding where I'm beginning. So the unpacking is happening right here, right now. So I want to unpack one other thing, sort of in, mm. in a, hopefully a, an even deeper dive here and bring together two, um, I guess, little comments that you've made. And we moved on very, very quickly, but I kind of want to come back to them. Um, and the two that I want to link is competitor as part of the why. And that was a really interesting one. You had that in your list of the reasons why you'd get involved yeah. in circular economy so the, the whole kind of competitor angle so competitive edge competitor advantage whatever you want to call it and actually bringing that linking that in with the um, customer retention that you just mentioned there okay so those are the two kind of threads or strands and this is a leading question and when yeah, I kind of describe this you'll see where I'm going with this because this is something I'm so pleased you brought this up and I didn't raise it and I promise everybody listening to this we did not script this this is not planned <laughs> it's just serendipity we're going to get to a point here that I think is going to give some incredible value so to me one of the big things, one of the big tests, really, I think, for most organizations, if they're bringing in this idea of circular economy, sustainability, purpose-driven marketing or business development, however they want to kind of catch it and phrase it, to me, one of the big advantages here is if they can see a commercial value from the offset or as, as quickly and as early as possible from investing in this because as you've just said there there's a cost to this and even if it's a, a resource in terms of time people's time within the business that is also a cost so it might not just be a capital cost it could be a just a, a resource cost so there is an investment in doing something like this so this is a rhetorical long-winded way of asking the question seeing what you think about this James and if again if you can unpack and guide us if there is a competitive advantage to a particular company in a certain industry of doing this, is the customer retention piece where that value is going to be seen the most? And the reason I'm asking this is because if we can, as marketers, business owners, entrepreneurs, CEOs, leaders, if we can kind of shift our organization around from being an organization that produces and sells products to make a profit, the old marketing um, mm -hmm. kind of definition, and actually be thinking more about can we 
retain a customer relationship such that it doesn't matter what they buy from us because we're going kind of creating more of a subscription style model in other words james if you're my customer i want the relationship with you to go for years and years and years i'm going to send you as part of your subscribing to this relationship i'm going to send you a product when you've used up that product you send it back to me and i'll send you something else that gives you equivalent or better value and repeat and repeat. In other words, I take on the circular economy thing. I take on that process. And all you have to do as a customer is buy into the relationship with me. So it's a kind of a subscription mindset, if you like, from the customer's perspective, but they get this ongoing continued sense of you know, well-being, because they know that the product that they've just used, they haven't consumed it, they've kind of borrowed it as part of this relationship, sent it back, it's probably been broken down into constituent parts, might be repurposed, might be recycled, might be whatever, I don't need to worry about that bit as a customer, I just need to know that the businesses I'm doing business with, in this, so say, circular economy, I've got a long-term relationship with them. I'm subscribing in the broadest sense to their offer. And so I'm gonna get product or service that serves me and gives me value, but I don't actually consume those things because I'm gonna send them back. Yeah, it's, 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 a, really great, it's a really great question and, and hopefully we can unpack some, but, it, but, but I fear that we could probably talk about this for hours and still have more to talk about but but i, I want to put out a few a few points from that from that sort of provocation from that question um products as a service is, a, is not a new concept right it, it, it's one of the the sort of six business models or, or new models you could use when you when you take a circular economy it's also the easiest one for people to 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 do and visualize but it's not without its challenges because as you quite rightly said, if you're doing products as a service, you, you take you take all of the ownership of the physical item away from the consumer. And, and, and also then consumer is a, a tough term then, right? You consume a sandwich, but you don't consume a mobile phone. So 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 the, 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 there's, a, there's a couple of elements in here. And there's a few points I want to start with. One is affordability. Like we, we have to make sure that these mechanisms are accessible to everyone. So we create equitable economies, not just those that can afford it. This shouldn't just be the mantle of the right social economic group. The second is, is, is sort of need and our relationship with stuff. And that can be emotional, practical, cultural, um, you know, and a whole host of other adjectives. And then there's an element of convenience. Um, but the big thing for me, and, and I guess the way I view it, is more from the perspective of the business of the producer rather than the end user or the consumer. And I want to give you a couple of examples. First one, let's talk about Apple, okay, and, and smart devices, iPhones. There's $68 of rare earth materials on average in the average iPhone. So if you're Apple, and for a moment you can think, Let's say, for argument's sake, I'm going to produce 100 iPhone 20s this year, and I'm going to put them out into the market. And I know because I've been doing this for a few years, actually, what does the consumer want? They want the ability to make calls, send text messages, go on Instagram, update their LinkedIn profile, whatever it might be. 
And they want to do that on the latest trend, on the latest device. But they have no way of accessing the rare earth material that sits in that in that that um, that handset in that device. They've got no way of practically removing the glass and the plastic and all of that cadmium and iridium and gold and aluminium and and valorizing it. They don't want. They don't have the capacity to do that. I do as Apple, but the consumer doesn't. So so if I could create a setup whereby they just buy that service from me, the ability to Instagram. And every 12 months, I send them the latest trend, the latest version of my asset. Then they're happy and I'm happy because now I know with fairly certain data backed assessment that of those 100 devices I put out into the market, I'm going to get 99 of them back in a 12 month period. So I now know out of those 99 devices, how much gold, how much aluminium, how much cadmium, how much iridium, I'm going to get back from the market. So I can plan on that material going into my next generation of phones. So now all of a sudden, as Apple, I now know I only need to find 1% of that material on the commodities market, given all of those externalities of geopolitical instability, supply chain disruption. I only need, that's now a cost, 1% of my model that's now the cost I need to find for the next generation of phones. And if I can now lock, because the data tells me, my consumer into a five-year contract, I can now predict my costs out to five years. So that then allows me to then put financial figures onto that model. It then does another thing. It means that if I'm an Apple customer, it's going to be much harder for me to swap to another device because that means setting up a new agreement. It means getting used to a new process. They might not do products as a service. They might not have the same convenience and compatibility as I'm used to. So like most humans, we tend to, to tend to opt for the status quo. So now as Apple, I've got security in my consumer base and I can start to then chip away at those folks that aren't part of my ecosystem. That's one product, right? It doesn't work for everything. If you take an example of Rolls-Royce, a large um, engineering company for the last 50, 75, 100 years have made gas turbines, engine engines for airplanes. About 45 years ago, um, Rolls-Royce realized that they, would, they were making these highly complicated, extremely complex gas turbines for the aviation industry. And they were just selling them off the shelf. And someone, a, an Airbus or a Boeing would come along and they'd buy the engines and they'd attach them onto their airplanes. And then they'd have to create maintenance contracts with, with um, Rolls-Royce. And then Rolls-Royce would have to spend all their time repairing, I'm um, oversimplifying this for, for time, um, it, it, repairing those engines when they went wrong because the maintenance contracts weren't followed to manufacturers' specifications. Instructions weren't read, like we've all been there, right? Like make sure you read the instructions before you turn your washing machine on. We don't do that, we just plug it in and off we go. So what Rolls-Royce realized that actually the best people to maintain their engines and keep their engines in utilization was Rolls-Royce. So they decided to set up an entire business model where they stopped selling gas turbines and they started selling power by the hour. And so the power by the hour contract was created about 45 years ago to, to deliver the ability to move a plane, a ship, 
a large item from A to B. And what Rolls-Royce found in doing so was all of a sudden, they could then manufacture those gas turbines in a way to keep them in service as long as possible. They could design them then to be easily repairable at specific times in, in that engine's life. And that also then meant that they locked their customers or they worked with their customers for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. They knew all the material that was out on the market. They knew all the material and the times and the maintenance schedules in order to make that um, make those repairs and keep it in service. And they could drive financial models around that. They also then had their, their, their predictable market share of where Rolls-Royce assets were going to be utilized over time. So all of a sudden, by, by doing something that was driven in order to keep something in, in, um, in use for as long as possible, they then created a lock-in with their, with their customers and therefore will be able to predict longer term on their expenditure and their profit. So, so products as a service, whilst it's, it's easy to think about, you know, how do we create rental models? How do we make it convenient to put, to put um, items through people's letterboxes or deliver to their houses or collect from the local supermarket? There's also something about how do you build a better relationship with your customer, with your consumer. And it is a relationship, not just not just a transaction, it's a relationship which you have to cultivate. And then it gives you the ability to, to look at extra dynamics, whether that's upselling, whether that's getting deeper relationships, whether that's expanding your technology into other areas of our of our lives. I mean, you know, you see in your backdrop there with your with your Apple computer, right? How many Apple devices do we have in our in our homes of course that's very strategic from apple to understand right well we we've built up some some customer loyalty here with our mobile devices now what about the way you consume television what about the way you um you you plan other elements of your of your lifestyle and then you see um you see accidental examples of this as well ikea is a really great example ikea for a long time you know affordable practical uh furniture for our homes that we end up building ourselves you know and we love that that's part of the ikea experience but about two years ago ikea launched kitchen rental or, or cuisines as a service and this was done entirely by accident um it was worked out apparently on average when when um when we move we tend to do two things we tend to buy a new car and we tend to replace the kitchen um, and, and I'm not sure what the link is between the car and the kitchen, but 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 the time when we're making those big economic decisions, psychologically going, well, we're in for a penny, we might as well go in for a pound. And IKEA worked out that on average, we change our kitchen every 10 years. But functionally, there's nothing wrong with that material when it's removed from our kitchen. But as the consumer, we can't do anything with it. Okay, we can sell certain bits on eBay or or, or on local exchange platforms. But actually what we want is the new kitchen. So Ikea, based on their, their, their sort of experience with furniture, thought, well, we can probably do that, right? We can sell, we can rent people their kitchens over a long-term basis. And that does a number of things. Firstly, you're now buying your kitchen from Ikea as well as your, your bookshelves and your sofas. But you're also only buying the ability to create cuisine. Ikea still own all of that material that's in your kitchen. So when you naturally come to change that in 10 years time, where are you gonna go? You're probably gonna go back to Ikea. 
And if you don't buy your new kitchen from them, you're going to sell back your old kitchen to them or you're going to return that material to them. So now IKEA have got the potential to sell you a new kitchen, but also all of that wood and ceramic and metalwork and everything else goes back into the production system to make the next generation of kitchens because it's been designed to be disassembled. It's been designed to stay in use as long as possible. So again, IKEA can now predict on that material coming back into the supply chain and not just sell it once, but sell it twice or sell it multiple times. So when we think about products as a service, when we think about reuse models, when we think about disassembly and then remanufacture and, and, and repurposing, this creates the ability for us to normalize some of these new disruptive business models. And if we normalize it, then the consumers consume it because that's just what everyone does. So it's a really great longer term perspective on how do you engage your customer beyond one purchase? Because that's what you want. You don't just want to buy them to buy something from you once. You want them to continue to buy from you. If you can do that in a way that then means that no more material is created or no material that has been created is wasted, you can then start to link that to some of your environmental credentials, which then only improves the story that you tell and actually how we feel good about the bit that we're trying to do as individuals, you know, when we humanize that problem, um, that also adds to the value of the brand and why we continue to shop with you. If I ask you another question, James, I'm going to burst that bubble. That that was honestly, that was just the most eloquently produced answer <laughs> to a question that was pretty complex at the start because I kind of wove a whole bunch of different things in together. And you came back with an eloquent positioning of, Oh, right. I get it now. I absolutely guarantee that the vast majority of people listening to this will be now thinking, I'm the business owner. We've got to get the management team together and rethink this. And I will absolutely guarantee that any marketer listening to this will be thinking, oh, that's what it's about. Oh, right. I get it now. Thank you so much for that answer. I mean, that was just beautifully <laughs> positioned. It really was. It's a complicated thing until you get that real clarity of, Okay, so it's about the customer, it's about the product, it's about retention and customer relationships, it's about the economics, and the clue is in the word circular economy. But a lot Correct. of us, I think, have probably missed the mark here. It is this kind of circular business, but it's also about the financial investment and, and return on that investment. It's kind of, it's almost these two concentric circles kind of whizzing around sort of side by side, but yeah. then joining together and you think, oh, there's the great value. Well, it's, 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 it, there's a little, there's a, you know, slightly further thread to that, right? We, it, and I guess over the last 10, 15 years, as this concept has gone from fringe to mainstream, the economic argument has been the one that's been made most clearly because for obvious reasons, when you're trying to engage the engines of our economy, the businesses, the large corporates, you need to talk to them in terms that's going to resonate. Again, meet them where they are and then take them where you want them to be. But when you think about the intersections of economy, society, environment or economy, society, biosphere, as it's being referred to, those things are, are concentric circles that interact with each other. And if you only focus on one, you're only creating a partial solution. So whilst for the last 10 years we've focused on the economics, the narrative and the story and the questions that are quite rightly coming out now is what is the social impact? Where is the um, equitable distributed solution that goes beyond just profit? 
This is not, now again, it's not an anti-growth agenda. It's about saying picking one over the other. It's saying that these are complex problems. They're complicated as well, but they're complex, complex problems. And there's always a simple solution that's always wrong. You need a complex solution to a complex problem. And that takes time to understand. And it takes time to bring together those unintended consequences and those unintended externalities that go as you start to pull those levers within the system that you, you have influence and in operating on. So it is about looking at the economics. And for me, it's always from a business perspective, it's always about going back to the economics. But that's not the only value you generate by potentially disrupting and shifting your business model. There is then also the social and the environmental capital that you can generate as well. And you were saying before about, you know, businesses, how do businesses see the value in this? There's a lot at the moment. It, it's been more acute in North America than it has been in Europe. But when we think about future of work and, and the, great, the, the, team, the great resignation in the US, like we all came out of the back of COVID and realized we wanted jobs with impact. We wanted to make a difference in the world or, or the vast majority of folks did at a certain, a certain level. And we've seen huge movement within the, within the um, employment market for folks wanting to do jobs where they can deliver impact in their everyday. So how do businesses tap into that as well? How do they do that by the strategy that they create, the impact that they're going to they're going to put out there in the world? And what does that mean for their own brand equity for the people that buy products for them, but for the people that work with them as well? There are some really great shining light examples, people like Patagonia, right, who, who say there is no line between planet and profit. It's The decisions are one and the same. And they've done some really great work, albeit in a niche part of the industry, in in sort of um, adventure and outdoor wear, um, you know, and they're not by any stretch a uh, you know, comparable to some of the large fashion brands that we see. But sixty-seven percent of Patagonia's revenue comes from pre-worn or pre-adventured clothing, and that sixty-seven percent clothing um, from the clothing sits in the store alongside their new items as well. And over the last two years of COVID, they've seen their, the average um, age of their demographic shift left by 10 years. So, so when you get that messaging right, when you understand what is the shared value that we can create, so there is growth for the business, but there is also then positive impact for the environment that we operate in. When you start linking and unlocking those elements, that's when the true value comes. And, 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 and it can seem it can seem like um, an uphill struggle and it, and it is right because if this was easy we wouldn't be having this conversation because we would already have solved it. This is a complex challenge it takes time and and you need to work with your competitors you need to work with your supply chain you need to work with academia you need to work with policymakers you need to work with as many folks as you can to get the most holistic solution that you can see. And then overlay that with the, the, the practicalities of what can we do right now? And what do we know we need to get to in the future? You hear a lot of people talk about the idea that the good shouldn't be the enemy of perfect. And it shouldn't, but good needs to be good enough. Good can't just be less bad. And one of the things that, that kind of, I kind of pulled out last week, um, we're not going to solve these huge global meta challenges by just consuming better products. We've got to consume in a completely different way. Our relationship with stuff, our, 
our way of generating value, our um, expectations of what good looks like needs to shift. Again, that's not about anti-growth, but it's back to this idea about you start disrupting your business models, looking at products as a service. You start embedding technology. You start looking at um, the use of AI and uh, digital twins and digital alternatives. And you start to look at new revenue generating opportunities that you might not have considered before. But actually in doing that, secure your, your, your organization, your business through, through a slightly more diversified portfolio, but also answer those big questions around, you know, how do we make sure that we don't just produce products that have a net zero impact or even an absolute zero impact, but we produce products that have a net positive impact. Because of course, from here forward, we can focus on that. But what about all of the emissions impact challenges that we've created over the last two to 300 years and a couple of economic, uh, sorry, industrial revolutions? That, that debt still exists. And we can, we can stop building on it, but at some point we're gonna have to save it. And the only way we can do that is shifting towards nothing to then positive. Um, and that's where we've got to get to in the next couple of years. And as I said last week um, at the summit, um, if we get to net zero, the planet still warms. If we get to absolute zero, the planet still warms. So this is not about achieving some far off 2050 strategy and then everything is fine. We have to look at this holistically and we have to start making some very tough but future positive decisions to ensure that people have choice and to ensure that that choice is accessible to everyone in the future. It is time for me to release James George to my audience or vice versa. <laughs> I, I want to let people contact you and get in touch with you because I have no doubt whatsoever that a number of people, or probably a good number of people are going to say, we need to we need to get older james we need to find out more we need his guidance mentorship and advice he is the circular economy troubadour so we need to we need to go there how do people contact you james um the easiest way is through linkedin it's the it's the unfortunately i dare I say it's the only platform i use so um you know folks can 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 find me find me on there um or you know similarly you know neil if they contact you directly i'm more than happy for you to pass my details along to them um, but you know, if, if I'm a big advocate of paying it forward, right? Like I have been very fortunate through, through no, no choice of my own, just through happenstance to find myself on this journey over the last four to five years. And one of the things I've realized is that folks out there want to do things differently. They want to understand the big challenge is where to start. And if I can, you know, to the point we we're making before, if I can help them avoid some of those initial pitfalls or, or point to some of the hotspots that we see globally of circular economy in action. And to your point before, the clue is in the economy pit. You know, a lot of people just settle on circular or circularity and we don't get beyond just better recycling. This is a much bigger idea about how we redesign our global economy. And if we can fix the economy, we can then start to fix the climate. And that's the bit that's going to be more of an issue as the years roll on, as we as we as we start to look at how we um, continue to create choice and growth 
but do so within the confines of our you know our finite resources on this planet so so folks are welcome to reach out to me and via linkedin or, or via yourself now um and i'm more than happy to set up conversations and and explore this beautifully nebulous complex topic even more james george strategic advisor at pixera global thank you for your time today neil thanks for having me thanks for the conversation <laughs>